You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Yes. What's what? Oh, well, um, I, I told Elvin this morning that the notes on the page are more just actual guidelines. They're kind of a suggestion. So I think he took me seriously. And on that last song, he was, he was taking a few liberties with it. And he can do that and get away with it. It was a lot of fun for me, though, too. I was uh, listening to him do that and really enjoying that. But uh, yeah, I don't mind sharing that with you at all, bud. Um, Tickling me less is we, uh, we had a safe trip down to Boise and back. That's good, but we left Nate there. So we're, we're, we're done. I mean, we're empty, you know. We're, we sent them all out, and um, that's okay. We'll, we'll make it. Everybody asks me, how's Audrey doing, you know? Nobody ever says, how are you doing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be fine. We're going to be just fine. Please turn to Job chapter 34. Job chapter 34. Uh, matter of fact, coming back from Boise, we stopped at, uh, we came up Highway 12, stopped at Lolo Pass, and, uh, you know, we checked the road reports the last time we had cell service and that opportunity, and everything was fine. Big sign outside of Kuskia, Idaho, which is 100 miles the other side of the pass, said, uh, uh, Highway 12 still open with a pilot car, expect delays and closures. Well, you know, we just passed that off, we'd been through it one way. Uh, we got down to where the pilot car would be, and the highway patrolman came over and said, Sorry, the road's closed. Uh, I was having visions of having to go back to Kuskia and Lewiston and Spokane. And uh, as it turned out, we just went back about five miles, six miles up the highway, uh, took Graves Creek to Petty Creek to the interstate out west of Missoula. Interesting little bonking through the back roads, and uh, it's only about 15 miles difference. Uh, on our whole trip, so we didn't have to take another two days to make it, which is good. All right, enough of that. Now, for a while now, uh, we have been studying the book of Exodus in our adult Sunday school class, and we have followed the account of Moses and the Israelites. We've seen some amazing and wonderful things there. We read about God calling to Moses from a bush that was burning but not being consumed, God sent Moses back to Egypt to secure the release of the Israelites from slavery. And God gave Moses several signs to prove that God was the one who had sent him. The snake that turned, or the staff that turned into a snake. And and put the hand into the robe and bring it out and it's leprous. And they put it back in and bring it out and it's clean. God gave those signs to Moses. God told Moses that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to him. And that there would be a series of plagues, all defined and implemented by God, that would happen before Pharaoh let the Israelites leave Egypt. Even after they left Egypt, Pharaoh and his army pursued them to the Red Sea, where God told Moses, and I hope you're hearing those words, because that's the key here. God told Moses to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand to part the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And then after they crossed, God told Moses to stretch out his hand again. And the waters closed over Pharaoh's entire army. They came to the bitter waters of Marah. 
which means bitter. And God showed Moses a tree to throw into the waters, and the waters became sweet. When the people grumbled for food, God caused quail to come up uh, into the camp and cover the camp in the evening. And God provided manna, that bread from heaven in the morning. The manna was special in that it appeared six days a week, Sunday through Friday. And God told the people to go out and gather what they needed for the day. Those who gathered too much didn't have too much. Those who gathered too little had enough. God told them not to save the manna from one day to the next. And if they tried and some did, the manna spoiled. But God also told them to gather twice as much on Friday and save it for the Sabbath day, because no manna was going to appear on the Sabbath day, and the manna that was kept overnight for the Sabbath did not spoil. How did that happen? God made that happen. As the account continues, the Israelites came to Mount Sinai, and God dictated that neither the people nor their flocks and herds should ascend the mountain, because it was holy. And just before God gave the Ten Commandments, we find this interchange in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 8. And that's not coming up. Is it? There it is. Yay. Okay. There it is. Exodus 19, 3 through 8. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now time after time after time, God told the people, here's how it's going to be. This is what I'm going to do. If you do what I tell you to do, things will go well for you. And then in Exodus 19, God said, if you want to be my people, then you have to do things my way. And the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now that is the right response to an important question. And it's a question that you and I have to answer as well. On whose terms will you live your life? Now, the Israelites could have said, well, you know, we we really think Pharaoh has the answers for our lives. Matter of fact, there are times in their journey where they're going to say, we want to go back to Egypt. We remember stuff from Egypt that we like better than what was going through now. So we're going to go back to Egypt. They could have said, Pharaoh has the answers for our lives. We're going to live our lives on Pharaoh's terms. Or they could have said, well, you know, we think the gods of Egypt are better than the, the God who brought us through the Red Sea. I mean, I know that was pretty amazing, but, you know... Still, uh, Egypt, yeah, we're going to go back there and we're going to live our lives on the terms of the gods of Egypt. Or they could have said, well, thanks God for bringing us through the Red Sea, but bringing us out of Egypt, but we're going to take it from here. We're going to live our lives on our own terms. They could have said that. Well, in Job 34, we're, we're talking about a man named Elihu. Comes along kind of out of nowhere has been there through the whole discussion from clear back in chapter 3, it seems. And he has some things to say to Job, and it's my belief that Elihu is speaking uh, on God's behalf, that he's representing God before God shows up and speaks. 
And in Job chapter 34, Elihu makes some strong accusations about Job. One of which is that Job expects God to deal with Job on Job's terms. And Job wouldn't have said it that way, but that's how it's turned out. Job expects God to deal with Job on Job's terms. In this chapter, chapter 34, Elihu builds on his statement that he made in chapter 33 that God is greater than man. And he refutes Job's argument that God has treated Job unjustly. Elihu emphasizes seven qualities of God which show that Job has not been correct in his criticisms of God. And at the end of the chapter, Elihu gives a scathing indictment of Job's speeches because Job justified himself and charged God with error. Today's message is called, On Whose Terms? And we'll begin with the first nine verses. Now, I'm not going to read them all, and I'll make quotes from them from time to time, but we'll go through chapter 34 uh, pretty much sequentially here. At the end of chapter 32, Elihu said that he would not use flattery in his speeches, and then he begins chapter 34 by saying, Hear my word, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. And that sounds like flattery, perhaps, but I think it was Elihu's intent for his listeners to judge for themselves whether they were wise and to evaluate what Elihu said on the basis of that wisdom. I don't think he was trying to flatter uh, uh, Eliphaz. I'm sorry, I probably said Eliphaz. I'm talking about Elihu here, and I'm getting confused anyway. Um, He probably, uh, I don't think he was saying to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, oh, you're such wise men, and being sarcastic or flattering or any other thing like that. I think there were others there. If, If Elihu has been there all this time, perhaps others were as well. Elihu wanted his listeners to test what he had to say and to compare it with what Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had been saying. And he invites discernment by repeating something that Job said back in Job 12, 11. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. He finishes his appeal by saying in verse 4, Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Not that they were the standard, but that let's evaluate it and let's determine what the right statements are, what is the right position that's being presented. As far as Elihu was concerned, it was time for truth and not more rhetoric. There's been a lot of rhetoric, and some of it's been very good, some of it not so good. And Elihu, I think, is ready for a presentation of truth. So in verses 5 and 6, in order to refute Job's assessment of God, Elihu begins by restating that assessment. He gives Job's complaint. Elihu said that Job claims to be innocent, uh, but Job also claims that God has denied him justice. Job claims to speak the truth, but he believes he is considered to be a liar. Job claims he is being punished unjustly by God. And that's what all this is in response to. Job has spoken things about God that Elihu cannot let go unchallenged. Verse 7, and those are strong accusations by Job against God. Elihu can't let him slide. Elihu replies with strong accusations against Job. But unlike the other three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Elihu doesn't say that Job is guilty of some unknown sin. He takes Job to task for what Job has said during his suffering. 
He starts by saying in verse 7, and this is harsh language here, that no one drinks up derision like water as well as Job does. That doesn't maybe sound as harsh. But here's what I think he's saying. The expression here portrays scorn as a beverage that Job drinks like water, and then he spits it all out on God. Just scorn for God, the way that he has spoken about God. According to Elihu, Job has despised God with his speech. And then in verses 8 and 9, Elihu says that Job has taken up the position of the wicked. Job has said things, is said specifically that there is no benefit to following God and in trying to please him. If this is how life's going to be, if I'm just going to end up with all my kids gone, my stuff is gone, and my health is gone, then there's no benefit to following God and trying to please him. Now, Elihu doesn't come right out and say that Job is wicked. But he does say Job is acting like someone who is wicked. Job, he said, he might have said, Job, you sound just like those godless, wicked people. Why wouldn't we think that you were one of them? You know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, right? That's kind of what Elihu is saying about Job and his wicked portrayal of the wicked uh, perspective. Uh, Elihu again accuses Job of looking at man from, or looking at life from man's perspective. In verse nine, in the ESV translation, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Well, taking delight in God is absolutely the right thing to do, and not because men material materially benefit in some way. But it's the right thing to do because of who God is. To take delight in God is the right thing to do because of who God is and because of who he created us to be in relationship with him. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that some people were depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, believing that godliness is the means of financial gain. If it was man's place... To dictate to God the terms of how life works, I'm sure that the idea of godliness always pays off financially would be one of those terms. We looked at that uh, in a message called Debunking the Prosperity Gospel. But man doesn't get to dictate the terms of how life should be lived or will be lived. God dictates the terms of life to man, not the other way around. Let's go on to verse 10. In his complaint about how God was handling his life, Job made the claim several times that God was unjust and that God was punishing him for no good reason. And when you read between the lines of what Job says, we see that what he was really saying was that God was punishing him for a bad reason. Now, you and I know that God wasn't punishing Job at all. But the point is that Job accused God of being bad and wrong. Well, in verse 10... Elihu states that God is neither wicked nor evil, which is another way of saying that God is holy. God's holiness means that God couldn't possibly have treated Job wrongly, because God is holy not partially and not some of the time, but completely and always and perfectly. And he couldn't possibly have treated Job wrongly if he is that kind of holy. In the same way, in verses 11 and 12, Elihu declared that God deals with man appropriately. And Elihu says specifically in verse 12 that God will not pervert justice. You say, God has treated you unjustly, Job? That's impossible. God is incapable of injustice because God is perfectly just. 
That's kind of the heart of this chapter. God is just. After all these claims of Job, God is unjust. He, he does bad things to me for wrong reasons, and I don't deserve this. Elihu says, no, God is perfectly just and could not possibly treat you unjustly, so there has to be another answer. Verse 13, Elihu again addresses the improper perspective Job is using to interpret his situation. And in verse 13, Elihu is speaking about God when he says, Who gave him, that is, who gave God, authority over the earth? And who has laid on him, on God, the whole world? Job wants God to explain why he has treated Job this way. He's demanded an explanation. Elihu might have said, don't hold your breath, Job. God is sovereign and doesn't have to explain himself to you. And God will make much the same point to Job later on. Then in verses 14 and 15, there's a word that we often use in conjunction with God because it is one of God's unique characteristics. God possesses this. No one who is not God possesses this. And that that characteristic, the word is omnipotent. Just means that God is all-powerful. In the beginning, God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's an expression of God's power. Elihu says that God should just as easily apply his power in the other direction. In verses 14 and 15, we read, If he, that is God, should determine to do so, If he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. I think that's another way of saying God brought you into this world and he can take you out. Elihu didn't want Job to forget that. And then we come to verses 16 through 18. Uh, If you look in Romans chapter 13, we're not going to do it now. I'm just going to reference what's there. But Romans chapter 13 tells us that God is the one who establishes every authority. And, and there it speaks specifically of governmental authority. And though we are often disappointed in this, I think we expect, rightfully so, those who implement governmental authority to act justly. Wouldn't you expect that? I mean, we know it doesn't always happen, but we still hope and we still expect justice on the part of those who are implementing that governmental authority. Elihu says, or, and even God, even God expects them to act justly. Elihu says in verses 17 and 18 that God could not implement and rule over just governments if he himself is corrupt. And it's kind of a philosophical argument here, but that's what he's saying. God could not implement and rule over just governments if he himself were corrupt. If God is not just, then when men corrupt the very authority they were supposed to implement, even God would not be able to determine that they are worthless or wicked. God is the one who establishes order in the first place. Job, here's the irony of Job's situation. Job wouldn't even know what injustice was if God were not just himself. And so here he is crying out against God for his injustice when it is God's justice that allows Job to perceive what injustice might be. Verses 19 and 20, we see that God is no respecter of persons. Back in chapter 9, of Job. Job portrayed God as a corrupt judge before whom it would be impossible for Job to get a fair trial. And then in verses 19 and 20 of Job 34, Elihu says that God does not show partiality or favoritism to either rich or poor. In matters of justice, and even in matters of life and death, God deals with everyone the same way. 
And now that's not to say that we always understand what he's doing or how he is working, but we can trust him to be completely just and fair in his dealings with us. And then verses 21 through 28, the last quality of God that Elihu stresses in Job 34 is uh, another one of those unique qualities that only God possesses. Earlier we said that God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. Now Elihu says that God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. Job has been asking for a hearing, wanting God to review the evidence of Job's life and to issue a verdict in Job's favor, which would let Job resume his life of prosperity and ease. He thinks that that really might happen. Job seems to think that God just needs to be better informed in order to treat Job correctly, which you and I know that's ridiculous, and Elihu points that out. Elihu says that God knows everything there is to know about Job. As we find here in verse 23, Elihu says, For he does not need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. God, or excuse me, Job wants to bring God to court to find justice for himself. God doesn't need a hearing in order to deal with Job correctly. Job needs to seek God's terms in order to find justice and not expect God to seek Job's terms. Because that's how life works. When it comes down to it, you can live life on some other terms or you can think you're living life on somebody else's terms, your own or some other thing. But in the end, you will always have to deal with God's terms for how life is supposed to be. Let's go to verse 29. And in this uh, section, uh, we find that, and that's not accurate, I don't think uh, this only actually goes down through verse 33, not clear through verse 37. Uh, Job 34, 29 through 33. Man doesn't dictate terms to God. It's true to say that man never dictates terms to God about anything. He tries. He tries to force God's hand or to make God do this or that. And man can ask for certain conditions, and God may agree to go along with them, but that's, not, that, that's because God is gracious to man and not because man is greater than God. So verses 29 through 33, we find four ways, specific ways in which man doesn't dictate terms to God. The first one is, first half of verse 29, man cannot compel God to speak. If God chooses to remain silent, then man can't use that silence as a basis for condemning God. God has the right. If you watch the crime shows, I'm kind of a crime show junkie, so I watch a lot of the crime shows. And, of course, we know every accused has the right to remain silent, right? Well, God has the right to remain silent, too, even more than we do. Matter of fact, he never has to answer to us, but we will always have to answer to him. And so, um, yeah, man cannot compel God to speak, and can't use God's silence as a basis for condemning him. Then in uh, 29, the last half of 29 and verse 30, we see that man cannot compel God to act. If God acts differently than we desire for him to, or if he does not act when we want him to act, we cannot force his hand and make him act as we wish. Although Job has been pushing for a long time. We can't make God do something. We can't stop God from doing something. We can't affect the timing of when God does something as far as forcing God. We may ask, and again, God may uh, agree, 
but God is not under our control that we would direct him in that way. Job will not get an audience with God just because Job wants one. And we cannot dictate terms to God about when to forgive. Uh, when we teach our children about asking for or granting forgiveness, we sometimes try to dictate those actions. We'll say something like, now you say you're sorry. Depending on how long this has gone on and the severity of the situation, that tone of voice can be altered. But now you say you're sorry. Carol, I remember a time when Lisa, your daughter, she'd done something. She wasn't cooperating with me. I don't remember what it was. It was at camp. And you were trying to make her say she was sorry. She was probably, what, three? I don't even know. And she wouldn't do it. <laughs> she would not do it. You just can't. You can't make them, but we'll, we'll say that. We'll say that. And usually, you know, even if we're having to force the issue, even if the child says, I'm sorry, everyone knows that he or she didn't really mean it, right? No, we also teach our kids to say, I forgive you, and someone apologizes. Now, we're not wrong to do that. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 18 that no matter how many times a person comes to you for forgiveness, you are to forgive them. On the surface... That makes what Elihu says here in Job uh, 34, verses 31 and 32, makes it sound a little wrong. Elihu is telling Job that man doesn't dictate terms to God about when to forgive, and that God is not obligated to forgive just because we ask for forgiveness. Are both Elihu and Jesus correct? Well, I think they are. And, and it's because we are told to forgive others on the basis of God having forgiven us or even being willing to forgive us, I think. When God forgives us, it is not because of any forgiveness that he has received. Rather, God's forgiveness it's a, it is a grace, and it's a mercy. He extends his forgiveness to us on his terms, not on ours. And that brings us to verse 33, from which I got the title of today's message. Elihu asked Job if he really expects God to show justice to Job on Job's terms. Uh, the NIV Bible puts it this way. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? How could any of us ever think that we could maneuver God in such a way that he has to give us what we want? In his love and his compassion, in his grace and mercy, God may offer forgiveness or justice or reward, but those things will always be on his terms, and never on ours. His offer of salvation is always on his terms as well. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the message. Let's go to verse 34, and we'll finish the chapter. And Elihu ends the chapter the way he began it, by appealing to those who are truly wise and who genuinely understand. Elihu says that the, the wise and understanding will draw four conclusions about Job based on everything Job has said. First, in verse 35, Elihu says that Job speaks without knowledge. Uh, we like to say ignorance picks up confidence as it goes along, right? Okay, uh, Job seems to have demonstrated that. Job has declared things that he doesn't really know. And when God speaks, that's the first thing God's going to say to Job. Here, the message is from Elihu, but God is going to tell Job the, first, the same thing as the very first thing that he says to him. When you go, if you look at chapter 38, verse 2 kind of a preview of what's coming with God speaking to Job. The first word God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Exactly the same thing Elihu is telling him. Job speaks without knowledge. 
Elihu also says that Job's words are without wisdom. And we talked before about one definition of wisdom being seeing the world the way God sees it and acting accordingly. Once again, Elihu points out that part of Job's problem is that his perspective is too man-centered and not enough God-centered. Job needed to see things from God's point of view in order to have and to use true wisdom. The third indictment Elihu levels against Job is that Job answers like wicked men, something Elihu said before. Job has spoken repeatedly of God as his enemy, even though we know that God's assessment of Job is that he was an upright and blameless man who, at least formerly, before the affliction, feared God and turned away from evil. God is the enemy of the wicked, not the righteous, but Job has answered as one who is at odds with God, not at peace with him. So Elihu says that Job answers like the wicked. And the last thing of which Elihu accuses Job is rebellion. Elihu says, in verse 37, that Job adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Rebellion is a very serious charge. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, when Samuel accuses Saul of rebelling against God's authority, He tells Saul, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Rebellion is the rejection of authority, or as Samuel said here, insubordination, which is improperly appropriating authority for yourself. Some commentators say, that the sin referenced in verse 37 of Job 34 is the same that Job's other three friends allude to repeatedly, some unknown sin which is clearly the cause of Job's suffering. If you believe as I do that Elihu speaks on God's behalf, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I, I think that the sin mentioned here in verse 37 is Job's sin of accusing God of injustice after the suffering began. The rebellion that Job added to that sin would then be Job appropriating God's authority in demanding certain actions or responses of God. Job could certainly request those actions or responses humbly and with an understanding that God might have other, better plans. But Job doesn't have the right to demand anything of God. And in that, he's just like us. We ought to be very careful in how we approach to God, uh, how we approach God as Christians the New Testament assures us that God wants us to make known to him our requests our petitions one translation said but we are never told to demand anything of God as though we somehow are exercising authority over him God is in charge and we are not i i talk about it uh, fairly frequently, bring it up once in a while. Uh, years and years ago, I had a uh, student who had a t-shirt, uh, Nancy Kelvin, probably remember Robert Johnston. Turned out to be a helicopter mechanic in the Navy, I think. But anyway, he had a t-shirt. says, there are two things I know for sure. There is a God. You're not him. Uh, and I like that shirt. Um, it stuck with me, obviously. God is in charge, and we are not. God is sovereign, and we are not. God will dictate the terms of our lives to us, and we will not dictate the terms of our lives to him. Now you think back again to the history of the Israelites, where we started this morning. Rather than live their lives on Pharaoh's terms, 
or on the terms of the gods of Egypt, or even on their own terms. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then what happened? Well, they occupied the land of Canaan, and they began to adopt the beliefs and practices of the people who lived there. For the better part of a thousand years, the Israelites worshipped the false gods, various false gods, including Baal, Asherah, Molech, Chemosh, and others. During all this time, at least some of the Israelites said to these false gods, we will live our lives on your terms. By the time Jesus lived on earth, many of the Jews were living life on their own terms. The Sadducees denied basic important doctrines like the existence of spirits and angels and the resurrection of the dead. Well, you know, I know God said that. We really don't like that part. We just don't believe that. At the same time, they were trying to cultivate political power. And so they were living life on their terms. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees who replaced God's word with their own traditions, their own traditions, claiming to be superior spiritually. But Jesus said to avoid their teaching. They were living life on their own terms, not on God's terms. Job wasn't an idolater. He was a righteous and blameless man in God's sight, at least until the afflictions began. But Job's hard times had changed him and his outlook He believed he had been faithful to God, but he didn't believe that God had been faithful to him. Job has said that his life is no better than that of a wicked man, and Job has called on God to answer for his unjust treatment of Job. But in this chapter that we just read, Elihu has defended God as just in spite of Job's perception. In contrast, Elihu has declared Job's words to be without knowledge or wisdom, He says that Job has acted rebelliously as he answers like a wicked man would answer. Elihu made it clear that God would not allow Job to dictate the terms of his relationship with God. So the question comes to each one of us. On whose terms will you live your life? I know. A lot of you already made that choice, but let's think about these things. On whose terms will you live your life? Will it be on society's terms, living by whatever is generally acceptable to others? Will it be on the terms of some influential leader following his or her ideas and teachings? Will you choose to live your life on the terms of some human religious leader like Buddha, Confucius, Gandhi, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, or others following a spiritual philosophy that is not divinely inspired? Will you live your life on your own terms, believing that you have to answer only to your own conscience and not to anyone else? Or will you live your life on the terms of Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ? Again, many of you here have already made that choice. And I hope that our consideration of Job chapter 34 will help you reassess, looking for ways in which your life may not conform to God's terms. Places where you may have stepped out and you're started down that path of saying, not so fast, God, I think you should do it this way. As a matter of fact, I demand that you do it this way. Others here have not yet chosen to live life according to God's terms. And if that's your situation, I want to say, don't be deceived. No other being is all-knowing and all-powerful. No other being, including yourself, has a better plan for what makes your life meaningful, fulfilling, and satisfying. And the fact is that you will have to answer for the choice you make in whether you give your life to Christ and follow Him or not. 
Now, following Jesus begins with accepting his salvation. And that has to be on his terms as well. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning a little bit, not quite this specifically. Many today teach that in order to receive salvation, you pray a prayer that acknowledges that you're a sinner, and you ask Jesus into your heart or something similar to that. Now, not a thing wrong with prayer, okay? Don't, don't misunderstand me. But there is not one scriptural example of anyone receiving salvation in this manner. That's not how it was done in the Bible. So we say, well, how was it done in the Bible? The scriptures tell us that we need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on a cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead. We need to believe that. That's essential. We do acknowledge our sin, and because of that, we choose to repent of our sin, determining that we will live life on God's terms from now on. We tell others about our faith in Christ, this belief that we have, the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, rose from the dead. And then we are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, at the same time receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's a scriptural pattern. And if you're ready to receive Christ's salvation on his terms today, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.